It is Monday, December 28th, 2020. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Live podcast. I hope you had a great Christmas. I sure did. Uh, Eric Bailey is my guest, and Eric wrote a book called Master of Persuasion. But before we go there, uh, Eric, how was your Christmas? It was great, thank you. How was yours? Good. Did you get anything that's worth talking about? You know, I got some... Great quality time with my wife and kids. We had a fantastic day. Um, I'm a huge foodie. And so we had a couple of really great meals, which is always wonderful. And uh, got to see our kids just really kind of light up. They actually did something different this year. They kind of listened to what their siblings were wanting for Christmas. And individually, they each came up to us and asked us for ways to earn money so that they could buy special gifts for each other. And uh, it, it, it was amazing because that was the first time they'd ever done that without any prompting from us. The oldest is eight. And so, I mean, young, young children really getting into the spirit of giving, which was awesome. And so that made it really special. That's really cool. Um, gosh, when I was that age, my mom would just say, here's some money, go buy for your siblings. That's great. Um, Wow. So uh, what kind of gifts did your siblings give each other, if you don't mind mentioning? And so they, um, one of the biggest things that I remember was our youngest, our oldest daughter, Ashley, wanted a, I think she called it a a Crystalina flyer, which was this little toy that that has a remote control that spins around and flies up in the air. And uh, she had been wanting this apparently for some time. And so our oldest son, Bradley, who's two years younger than her, heard this and really wanted to earn, I think it was something like 20 or $30 for it. And as soon as she opened it up, her eyes just absolutely lit up and she went over and gave her brother the biggest hug. And, <laughs> and even Bradley was just sitting there beaming from ear to ear, like, wow, I put in all this effort and I, I helped Ashley be so happy. Uh, from this and so yeah that was really nice that's awesome um yeah that that's that's really cool well uh you have an interesting life uh, you wrote the book called master of persuasion you're a motivational speaker you're you were homeless i want to get into that later but let's learn a little bit about you you were born and raised where in california in los angeles county born in san diego but uh, raised in los angeles did you go to the super bowl in 1988 I sure didn't. That was, I would have only been, (laughs) I would have only been a year old. Okay. Anyway. um, Yeah. I remember that anyway. Okay. So now, so you're LDS. Are you a convert or are you a lifetime member? Lifetime member. Uh, Interesting thing about that actually though, is I was adopted as an infant and my birth mother had been baptized just a couple years earlier, but she was inactive. Um, when I finally met her 30 years later, she told me that she had uh, gotten baptized just to impress a boy that she liked. But my oh. great-grandmother, who had been baptized a few years earlier, convinced her to put me up through adoption through the church. And so, oh, wow. uh, yeah, so I was put up for adoption through LDS Family Services and uh, raised in the church. And so um, when I got to meet my great-grandmother, who's still alive, by the way, she's 96 years old, I think now. And I uh, got to give her a big hug and just say, wow, you have no idea how much you've impacted my life just because of that one decision that you helped my birth mom make. And so. So did uh, you yeah. ever meet your birth mom? I did when I was 30. 
So I'll bet you you've heard the song Alive by Pearl Jam, correct? Oh, yes. So does that song have a lot of meaning to you then? You know, I've never really thought of it that way, but uh, yeah, the lyrics of that song would definitely work, would definitely connect. Yeah. Of course, uh, you didn't talk to your mom at age 13 and find out she had cancer. Let me ask you, though, did you meet your birth father or not? I did, yeah. Uh, and excuse me, I said uh, 30 for my birth mom. I was 29, but 30 when I met my birth father. And, okay. Uh, yeah, interesting thing was uh, I'm a professional mentor married to a massage therapist, and I found out he's a professional mentor married to a massage therapist. I wow. Thought, well, so maybe uh, one of your kids will uh, take on the profession and the family. Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> well, uh, so let's talk about this book. What made you decide to write The Master of Persuasion? It's been on my mind for quite some time. We actually host a three-day live seminar um, called Master of Persuasion, and we'd been wanting to tr uh, transfer that, that seminar into book form so that it could reach a lot more people. And more than anything, there are so many people in the world that have life-changing product services or messages that they simply don't know how to get into the hands of more people to change their lives. And, you know, most of us have, have kind of that, that one network marketer friend, right? That it seems like every yep. month they have a brand new network marketing opportunity. And most of us kind of roll our eyes a little bit because of the stereotype that uh, that we all think of, of somebody yep. joining this this new network marketing company. And then, of course, they send out messages to everyone they know saying, oh, my gosh, you got to try this new product and click on this link and you got to do this. And yeah. By the way, for the record, you can't be in Utah for more than five years without being approached by a multi-level marketer. Would you agree with that statement? Oh, for sure. Yeah, Utah is uh, kind of the network marketing capital of the world. It just seems like a lot of people have life-changing products and services, but they don't know how to get them into the hands of more people. A lot of times people have a desperate need for something, and so they're already pre-sold and pre-qualified, so to speak, um, because they, they want something to change their life. But if we are approached the wrong way, then people can actually talk us out of purchasing something that we desperately need. And that's what we're hoping to, uh, to change with this book. Uh, I mentioned that we teach it in a three-day live seminar and uh, in Utah every year, but in book form, we hope it can reach a lot more lives and help people to, to really make the difference that they're looking to make. Yeah. So you were homeless. How, when were you homeless and how was that? How long were you homeless for? Where did you live? That'd be an interesting topic. Thankfully, we weren't homeless for very long. Um, this was a few, actually just a few short years ago. We were on the verge of, of losing everything. And I remember uh, we thought we had a home lined up and we didn't. We had put everything on the line for a, uh, our very first three-day seminar. And yeah, just a without going into too much detail, um, we basically lost everything and we had to uh, simply move forward with faith that everything was going to work out. And we had no idea how things were going to work out, but uh, thankfully it, it did. Um, Heather actually had to uh, take the kids and live with her parents who were living in St. George, Utah at the time for an entire summer. And I stayed up north to try to figure things out, to try to salvage everything. Um, I ended up renting a room from my cousin for the summer. 
and I would see Heather periodically throughout that summer. And so technically we were separated for three months and thankfully everything finally worked out and, and uh, we ended up uh, getting a home in Springville and things finally came together at, at, at the end of that summer. And we were able to, to finally get a home again and, and uh, be together as a family. Um, and so, yeah, really interesting time. Wow, I bet that was hard on your marriage. Did I? I don't want to get off topic. Did you think about getting a divorce or any of that? That must have been really hard on the families involved and everybody. It, it was hard, and we we do know what it's like to be on the verge of divorce. Um, the thought crossed our minds at times. Um, I don't think we ever actually mentioned it to each other, but uh, the thought definitely crossed our minds. Uh, that wasn't the lowest point in our marriage, though. The lowest point was a few years earlier when uh, shortly after Ashley was born, our, our oldest daughter, because subconsciously, I thought that she had, quote unquote, replaced me. Um, Heather had uh, had been wanting to be a mother for so long, and that was something that was so important to her. And after Ashley came into our life, you know, Heather didn't do anything to, to make me believe this. This was just a subconscious thing on my own. But uh, I almost thought, okay, she, I gave her a child and I guess she has what she needs now. And I guess she doesn't need me anymore. And, and there was literally a, about a year, year and a half period of time where I literally slept on the couch every single night because things had, had kind of hit rock bottom. I think she mentioned in her pod in uh, her interview with you and in her book, The Underpressed Heart, that thankfully we ended up going on a cruise for her birthday, and that that yeah was she did, and that really turned things around for our marriage, and and things were finally salvaged from there. But yeah, we we got pretty close. I'll bet you uh, your parents and Heather's parents probably had some words with you, didn't they? And I, understandably so, if the answer is yes. Um, they we we don't really discuss our marriage, any, any negative points um, outside of our marriage. That's something that we made a promise to each other that we would do. Um, you know, if we ever desperately need help, of course, we'll reach out to professionals and, you know, marriage counselors and, and that sort of thing. But something that we learned from the very, very early stages of our relationship was not to turn to our parents when we should be turning to each other, if that makes sense. I mean, yes, there's a yeah. time and a where, where you can reach out for advice, but if we have a disagreement, for example, you know, one of us isn't going to call our parents and say, "Oh my gosh, Heather was such a jerk." No, <laughs> you know that's, oh, that's, yeah. that's very damaging to a relationship. Um, if if we need to vent, we we grab a piece of paper and we journal it. We get those feelings out and we we destroy the paper, and then we get our emotions out and then we discuss it with each other. You know, um, people can hear how amazing our marriage is and they were fine telling the story of where we were to going to where we are now, which we have a fantastic marriage now as, as a way to inspire others. But in the moment that, yeah, that's a big no, no for us. If we have a, a disagreement or something, we, we discuss it between us and no one else. Yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. Um, that that's actually, that can be very healthy. It reminds me of something I had heard on focus on the family with James Dobson, with James Dobson, which I'm sure you've heard of and something similar. He was interviewing a young couple that got married and when they would have an argument, I guess, eventually 
If it got real heated, they would take a 15-minute 15 time, 15 timeout from each other and then go back to the argument and settle things over. So sounds like something similar to what you're talking about. A little bit like that, yeah. Yeah. So uh, talking about persuasion, uh, you said that persuasion happens in the first 10 seconds of meeting someone. Now, here's a question. This is a weird time. We have COVID. I was heavily into online dating, and I know that you know, you didn't write about dating, but just uh, hang with me here. Talked about what about meeting somebody online and doing online dating when you haven't even met the person yet. What happens? How how would persuasion occur in the next in the first ten seconds when you say, "Oh, you should date me," or whatever? Because I'm going through a stage right now, without revealing too much information. I'm talking to someone right now. And I don't want to be too clingy. And we haven't even met because of COVID and other things going on, but that's the goal. How would I persuade someone that I met online that they should date me or something, or they should buy from me because of COVID haven't even met yet? Sure. Well, the interesting thing is, I don't know if she told you, but uh, Heather and I actually did meet online. And yes, you did. Yes, she did. Yeah. And there are a number of things that can influence that decision from the verbiage that you use, from uh, that every person has obviously a different personality type and every personality type is motivated by something else. And so if you uh, speak something that, you know, try to persuade that person to, to date you and you use the wrong motivation type, then that can be off-putting. Um, the very thoughts that we think as we're typing the first message can actually persuade a person to look into it or not look into it. Something that I did purposely on the website that I met Heather on was on my profile. I actually, this is going to sound really corny, but I did it on purpose. I, I, I posted a very silly joke on there to kind of demonstrate my weird sense of humor. And I, I said specifically, if this joke does not make you laugh, we're not going to get along. And I did that as a way to kind of filter out people just to save them time and save me time. And when I messaged Heather for the first time, she messaged me back and said, I read your joke and I couldn't stop laughing. I had to tell all my friends and family. And I thought, well, what do you know? She does exist. How about that? Wow. And so, <laughs> yeah, again, the, the type of verbiage that you use, especially in the initial message, the, uh, uh, the thoughts that you're thinking as you are sending the message actually can make a, a difference. The picture that you have on your profile can make a huge difference. And so there's quite a few things. In fact, one of the books that uh, is coming out next year is actually going to be about dating. It's called Being Lonely Sucks, So Stop It. And so uh, there's going to be some tips in that regarding messaging, regarding uh, body language and a couple of different things. And so, but uh, yeah, those are the, the basics when you're messaging someone. It's uh, how do you phrase that first message and what is it that you're thinking during that first message? Because people can pick up on the intentions of our hearts and the thoughts in our minds. And if we're thinking, ooh, I want to get this person. Ooh, I, I really want to get something from this person. People can, people have a sixth sense about that and they can pick up on that. And so if that's what we're thinking, then most people will, will kind of just have that weird feeling like, oh, I don't really know what it is about this person, but something is a bit off-putting. And so I'm either going to ignore this person or I'm going to say no. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, let me ask you something about that, though. And by the way, um, uh, just for the record, I don't want anybody getting any. I do not have a girlfriend, for the record. I'm just talking to someone, and we'll just leave it at that. But, you know, anyway, here's, here's my question, though. Um, there seems to be a lot of false realities, and maybe this comes back to what you said, the profile. But there seems to be a lot of false reality. And I realized some of this had to do with the fact that I was, let's see, I would have been 21 at the time. You know, I, I'm 40 years old and I did online dating before online dating was cool. I did online dating back in 2001. People cringed, especially my mother. Oh my gosh, she did not like me doing online dating. And I understood why, because they didn't do that in her day. And Back in her day, people met at physical places. I get it. And you hear all these stories about people meeting creeps on the internet. You did back then too in 2001. But my question though is this. I told that I was dating this girl online, well, the online dating, hadn't even met her. But I started telling people she was my girlfriend because gosh, we'd talk every night for, and we'd chat on MSN Instant Messenger. We would video chat we'd audio chat with each other to save phone bill to save money because back then long distance actually meant something and it was it was costly to call from utah to wyoming and my mother said what did you do you got you raised our bill again so one night i was on the phone with her saying i love you didn't even meet her now i look back and i thought what a dumb thing i did i hadn't even met her it was a false reality, wouldn't you say? Because there was nothing in my profile that was catchy, like you said. So what would you make of that? Well, again, it depends on what the intention was. Was the intention to eventually meet up? Then that, you know, to you, you, you uh, probably did feel like you loved her. And, and you that uh, could be a very real emotion. You probably did fall in love with everything that you imagined her to be with what you were hearing. Um, Heather and I spoke every day on the phone for a number of months before we ever met in person. And, you know, we didn't officially make our relationship, you know, we didn't officially become boyfriend and girlfriend until after we met in person, of course. And, uh, you know, the words I love you uh, weren't said to each other until after we'd met in person. But we, uh, that was one of the things that I think allowed our, our relationship to progress as quickly as it did. We met in August of, of 2008 and we got married in December of 2008. And that was 12 years ago. And uh, again, one of the things that helped us to progress that quickly was because we'd built that foundation of communication. We'd gotten to know each other very, very well, at least I, I guess as well as you can without physically meeting someone. But I would say what you were feeling was uh, it could have been very valid. You know, um, it could have been that you were enamored um, with with what you hoped was going to happen. It could be that uh, what you were hearing at that time was uh, something that you've been looking for. And so, um, yeah, it, it could have been a very valid emotion. Well, let's talk about rapport, because you also talked about rapport and how good it is to build rapport in your book. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read somewhere where you can meet someone for two minutes and build great rapport. Correct. Sure. Okay. So let me tell you a story. I used to do customer service at Verizon wireless back in 2009 to 2011. 
then again, ironically, I did customer service at Xerox, which is on the Verizon Wireless project. So I was basically a third-party employee of Verizon Wireless. I did not work for Verizon, but we were on the project, if that makes sense. So sure. it, was, uh, it was interesting because I had lived in Louisiana for a while, and I've listened to the radio religiously ever since I was a little kid, ever since I was probably about six or seven. So I know a lot about rock, top 40, alternative, little bit of country. I know a lot about music. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to be prejudiced. This, this is not Kevin Williams being prejudiced. This is just factual information here. Because I lived in Louisiana and there were a lot of African-Americans, I could tell usually if someone was black or not by their voice. Now, sometimes I was wrong, but most of the time I was correct. And I had a, I would have African, I knew that they were, I knew that they were African-Americans just by the sound of their voice and the way that they talked. And so when they would call in, they would be irate as ever. They would be awfully irate. And so I would say, I appreciate your understanding. I, I understand that you're frustrated. I understand this happened to you. I'm, I'm, we will get to the bottom of this. We'll, tr we'll get to the bottom of this. And they would still be mad. But then the minute I talked, I would ask, what kind of music do you like? Because I didn't want to ask, are you black? Because that could really sound racist to the person. And I could have gotten in trouble with my job. So I'd just say, what kind of music do you like? Knowing what they were going to tell me. And then they would say, oh, I like uh, Dr. Dre. I like Snoop Doggy Dogg. I like Warren G, all these rappers and artists. I like Ice Cube. I like Jerol. And so I said, oh, okay. What do you think of uh, Changes by Tupac? What do you think of Bobby Brown, uh, my prerogative? And just get, the, the customer turned around quickly, did a 180 on me like they were best friends. So I think there's something to this report. What would you make of my story? It sounds like a fantastic example. Yeah, you found a commonality within that person. And uh, just that simple commonality allowed you to to bond even over the phone with that person. So yeah, great job. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you will, if I don't know how much you've been, well, you've probably been a lot of around a lot of African Americans being from LA. You sure. know, pro probably that uh, African Americans, I don't know why they're awfully loyal to their music. This is not microaggression or any of that. This is just a fact. I've been around a lot of African Americans. They really treat their music like a sacred cow, don't they? Oh, for sure. You know, I can actually tell you a, a great story about my assistant, Erica. She is a fantastic example of this. She's able to find out exactly what is important to different people and then utilize that to find a commonality and to then uplift them and to not only, you know, bring them into the company, but to help them to find different things that will solve different challenges in their life. And so I tell people all the time that Erica is, is without a doubt the heart of our company. It's something that honestly, even though I was the one that wrote the book, it's something that I'm still very much working on. It's not something that I've, uh, that I've mastered in, in totality, but she's one of those people that everybody loves because she knows how to, again, identify what is important to each individual person and help them to feel connected to her, help them feel connected to uh, the different things that we're trying to accomplish as a company. And so I tell people she's the heart of our, if, 
if my wife and I are the heads of the company, she by far is the heart of the company because she can take someone that that might be irate. Maybe they've experienced something from our company, which, you know, which happens to every company that they didn't like. And she'll be able to reach out. And again, she'll find that common ground and she'll take a person who is absolutely just ticked off at, at me or at my company or something. And within just a few minutes, she'll, she'll make a friend for life and a customer for life, which is amazing. And so, yeah, the absolute best example of that would be her. Oh yeah. That's wonderful. Now in your book, you talk about if somebody is thinking positive thoughts and you put pressure on a certain part of their arm, it cannot go down. Talk to us a little bit about that because I have a hard time believing that I would think rather you're thinking positively or not, I could, uh, get your arm down pretty easily. It depends on the part of the arm that you're pushing. And there are different ways that uh, simple muscle tests can be manipulated, but when it's done properly, yes, a, it's called, it's a muscle testing is a, a term or some people call it kinesiology, but it's a way that a person can actually test different parts of their subconscious mind. This can also be done at a person's feet. If they're lying down on a massage table, for example, and yeah, we do this at quite a few of our events well, where we will invite someone to come up on stage, someone usually that we haven't met before, and we'll have them extend one of their arms and we'll make sure they don't have any injuries or anything like that. And we'll apply pressure to their forearm, a little bit of downward pressure, and we'll have them think something like, I am amazing or I can do it. And I will literally apply all the strength that I have and their arm will not budge whatsoever. And it's interesting because they'll think that I'm only pressing a little bit, but when a person is, is thinking those thoughts, those, those empowering thoughts, literally, no matter how hard I push, their arm will not go down. We'll then have them think I can't do it. Or we'll have the audience think things like I want your money or something along those lines. And I'll take one finger and I'll press the same spot. and Their arm will go down very, very easily. And the person on the stage will sometimes go, wait a second, what just happened? I've never experienced anything like that before. So we'll do it a couple of times and we'll say, everybody think things like you're beautiful, you're amazing, you're wonderful. And I'll put as much pressure as I possibly can on the arm and it will not budge whatsoever. I'll then say, think a negative thought towards the person and I'll put just the tiniest amount of pressure and the arm will go down. And so, yeah, it, it's really an interesting thing to, to watch. So you, when you talk about muscle testing, you're not exactly talking about, is this, you're not exactly asking questions like, is this person depressed? Is this person hurt or whatever? Now, maybe your wife does some of that. I don't know. Not from stage. And so okay. can, are there certain types of muscle testing where you can ask questions like that? Yes. But from stage, no, it's just a basic demonstration of of how the principle of our thoughts affect the physiology of others works. So how does your staff react to that? Cause it almost sounds like you're going on. I don't know if you heard of a guy named Vandermeen. He was a hypnotist back in the nineties in salt Lake. Well, I think he traveled, but he stopped in salt Lake a lot. Uh, sounds like that, but how does your staff react to a, to a thing like this? Everyone that actually works for us uh, has been a client of ours. And so either in the clinics in um, our, our events. And so uh, the way that we actually have found everyone that, that is now part of our staff is they were once clients. They, they excelled, they got fantastic results and they fell in love with our purpose, our mission. And then they reached out for, uh, when we had job openings. And so they, they love it. They're all very used to it. Okay. 
So let me talk to you about sales because you asked, you talked about how you, when you sell, when you love a client, you can sell more. Now, to me, that sounds odd because I've been in sales. I've worked at a radio station. It was hard to sell. I'm not going to mention the name out here because I don't want to get sued, but I worked at a radio station in Salt Lake, a little known AM station. It was hard to sell, and I knew that going in. And half of the clients I talked to, I knew that I could not persuade them. So how would I have been able to love the clients knowing that this station would have been hard to sell, and I only got one sale out of the whole entire year I was selling for them? The biggest thing that people need to realize is the difference between persuasion and manipulation. Persuasion is influencing someone into a win-win situation, whereas uh, manipulation is anything else. And so either influencing someone into a win-lose or into a lose-lose situation. And when people go into uh, you know, sales presentations with the I idea, I'm going to create a win-win situation for this person, even if that means mentioning that what we're offering would not be the best fit for them that creates a, a positive environment. There have been a number of times when people have come into my clinics, for example, and they have needs and they, for example, had a, a gentleman come in with really bad shoulder pain into our St. George office a few months ago. And he came in and, and I, I examined him and, and found out that the type of technique that we utilize was actually not what he was needing. And so after a few minutes of him being there, I said, you know what, as much as I would love to quote unquote, sell you on something that would not be a good investment for you. You actually need different types of services. And so, um, I'm not going to even offer you a treatment plan here. And he looks at me like, like, wait, really? Like, you're not going to try to close me on a treatment plan on anything or anything. I said, no, I mean, if you really twisted my arm, I, I, I guess I could, but I want you to invest your hard-earned money into whatever is going to actually give you those results that you're after. In, this, in his case, you know, getting his shoulder better. And I said, what we do here is not going to be the best fit for you. And so had I tried to quote-unquote sell him on pursuing treatments with us, that would have been a win-lose situation. When people enter you know, discussions, whether they're sales presentations or, or whether it's just a, a first-time discussion, with the idea, I'm going to find out what, what this person is needing. If I can offer them something that will benefit them, fantastic. If not, then I won't try to sell them. That's what creates that positive environment. And that's what helps people to sell a lot more. When a person is 100% okay with, the with their quote-unquote prospect saying no, that's what opens it up to people saying yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let me just uh, divert here. What, are you a physician as well? I, I got the impression in your book, you do therapy or something. I'm not a medical doctor, but I'm a licensed uh, holistic healthcare practitioner. Oh, okay. You and I need to talk off the podcast. Okay. No, I, I, I'm intrigued by holistic medicine. Anyway, um, I use essential oils. We'll, we'll have to talk sometime off the podcast. Sure. Anyway, um, so let's go back to this, though, because I think that this is important. Do you think, though, and I don't know if you know the answer, do you think maybe even though that client turned you turned down that client, obviously you told something the client did not want to hear, maybe the client wasn't happy with you at the moment, but do you think maybe you got more money because that client maybe referred his friends to you because of your honesty. I don't know. 
Oh, it's very possible. Um, we've had that happen a number of times where uh, there are people that will come in and they are almost trying to pitch me to to take them on as a client. Um, that's something that we're, we uh, are very honest and upfront about that we do not take everyone as a client and you have to meet certain criteria in order for us to accept a person on as a client. And, and there have been a number of times where people have heard about the results that we help people to achieve and, and the work that we do in our company. And people will come in and they'll, they'll really want us to, uh, to pitch them as interesting as that sounds. And I'll look them very, you know, in the eyes and just say, as much as I would love to serve you, what we offer is not gonna be the best fit for you. And so I actually know someone that can actually get you better results for what it is that you're looking to do. And when people hear that, they go, oh my gosh, my respect for you just went up by about a thousand times. And they'll say, can I refer people to you that that would be a better fit? Well, of course you can. And so, oh yes, there've been a number of times that uh, that people who we, we turned down uh, did refer and uh, those other people became some of our best clients. So let me ask you this, back to the radio station, because the radio station, it was hard to sell you have to know the kind of people just from what I have heard from you and your wife, Heather, I think you might be their, their ideal client. I'm not going to sell advertising on this podcast. Don't even, I don't even work for the station, but it was a really, really conservative frugal audience. There were homeschoolers listening to the station. There were ultra, ultra conservative people. Some would consider them right wingers listening to the station. What's that? I'm sorry, what? Oh, the, so, yeah, I want to go back to this radio station uh, that I and figure, maybe figure out how I could have done better. Um, the radio station that I was working for in Salt Lake was very hard to sell for. Uh, it was, there was a lot of people listening who were ultra, ultra conservative. Some would call them right-wing extremists. Um, people were very frugal with their money, homeschoolers. Some of them were even holistic there. Uh, how would I have been able to, uh, say other than you may not have heard of this station, but so-and-so has, and we cater to this audience. You might have a friend that has heard of this station these kind of people listen, advertise with us. What would you have suggested that I'd done as hard of a station as it was to sell? Well, as I mentioned, the biggest thing that, that a person needs to do and the very first thing is to find out what needs and strong desires their prospective clients have. Mm -hmm. If a person isn't a business owner, then you know, being pitched a chance to advertise with them probably isn't something that they're going to utilize. If a person is a business owner and they're looking for ways to expand if they if their target market is the person that listens to that radio station and uh, they have the funds and the desire to continue to expand and to invest in advertising space then yeah that person uh, would probably have a need and that would be a, a relatively easy sell depending on on how you say it and, and how you you phrase it um, but I think a mistake that a lot of people make is what we call the show up throw up routine and the analogy that we like to use is imagine that you're sitting at home minding your own business enjoying you enjoying a day when you get a knock on the door and when you open it you find someone that you've never seen before in a white lab coat 
And before you can say anything, the person says, hi, my name is Dr. Brown, and I just invented the most amazing cure for athlete's foot. It helps eliminate athlete's foot in just a simple cream that you apply just two days on your feet, and it goes away instantly and permanently. It's only $500. You want to buy it, don't you? You know, when most people hear that analogy, people will go, well, what? <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. Most people will, I would, and I say, well, would you buy it? And of course, most people respond, well, no, of course not. And I say, well, why not? And they say, well, I don't have athlete's foot. I go, oh, got it. In order to make a sale, what you're saying is you need to find if, if what you're selling is a cure for athlete's foot, you need to find people with athlete's foot. They go, well, yeah. And I say, oh, interesting. That's one of the biggest differences between those who succeed in sales and those who don't is Again, a mistake that a lot of people make is they try to pitch their product or service to people that don't have a need for their product or service. And so, of course, they're not going to get yeah. that sale. That makes sense? Yes, it does make sense. And um, so let's talk about flattering because um, you talked about loving the clients. You talked about finding what it is that they want. How do you avoid false flattery? Because, you know, I've been approached by multi-level marketing sales. Maybe they meant well, maybe they didn't. I don't know. And they tell me, oh, you're wonderful. You're blind. You, you have great, you have a good personality. You're outgoing. You have lots of friends. You should join us and sell our products. We know you like our products because you've told us before. So uh, now maybe that was sincere. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But how do you avoid false flattery? And how does a person know that you're, flattering, uh, doing false flattery or not? Again, it all has to do with, with the person's intention. Is the person's intention simply to get something from you? And so if uh, the, the network marketer was, was trying to, to use those compliments as a way to just get you to join so that they can make more money, then that could be a form of false flattery. Or it could be the fact that they, they did mean it, that they were sincere, that they um, knew that you, I don't know if at that time you had uh, suggested that you were looking for you know, a business opportunity or uh, another, a way to get an, an extra paycheck each month. Um, in that case, maybe they were simply looking out for your best interest. And so how do you avoid that? One more time, it's just going back to what does this person need and what would be in their best interest? You know, going back to the, the athlete's foot analogy, if, if my product is something that cures athlete's foot, if a person doesn't have athlete's foot and has zero um, chance of, of getting athlete's foot, then me trying to sell them a $500 athlete's foot cream, I don't even know if that exists, by the way, but, but you get the idea, would yeah. not be a situation. You know, I could flatter a person and say, you know what, you are the type of person that is really, really smart and smart people use this athlete's foot cream. It's like, well, if a person bought that athlete's foot cream, but no one they know has athlete's foot, that that wouldn't be a smart decision. That would not be a win-win situation. And so it, it to me, yes, you can utilize uh, sincere compliments as a way to to gain rapport, you know, everybody likes to, to receive a compliment. And of course you can send them compliments in your mind, such as you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're beautiful. Uh, but what's the intention? Is the intention to help this person to see themselves a, in a better light and thus be open to solving their problems? Then fantastic, that would be a win-win situation. If it's just false flattery, like you mentioned, then that would be a form of manipulation. So Does let's talk sense? about, yeah, let's talk about smoke screens because we've all heard smoke screens. I've used them. In, in fact, the company that 
I'm the company, one of the companies that I've been involved with years ago, you know, somebody said, and it's funny that you put this in your book. I had to laugh because it represented me. I said, I don't want to sign up yet because A, I didn't have the money, but I didn't want to sound dramatic. So I just said, I'll pray about it. Make sure that's what God wants me to do. Of course, that wasn't the true answer, but I knew she would buy into it. And it's funny that you mentioned that. So tell us a little bit about smoke screens. And you really got down to it when you said, oh, I don't have money. Well, if you had money, what would you do differently? And then, uh, yeah, let's go into that a little bit. Sure. Well, like you mentioned, a lot of people put up smoke screens because this is going to be very, very frank, and this may offend some people, but unfortunately, most people lack the courage to simply say no thank you. You know, some people do it as a way to, to save face or, or they think, oh, I'm going to hurt this person's feelings if I say no thank you. What they don't realize is smoke screens literally are a form of manipulation. Now, when a person first hears that, they may think that's really harsh, and maybe it is. But it's a form of manipulation because it is disrespectful to the other person's time. When a person says, oh, yeah, I'll get back to you, when they have no intention of doing so, that in and of itself is dishonest and, and it, quite frankly, is a lie. When I can tell that someone is putting up smoke screens, I simply give them another opportunity to tell me no thank you. Um, I was talking to someone just a couple of days ago. And uh, she was uh, considering coming into one of our clinics for a treatment. And she began to put up what I could tell were smoke screens. And I said something to the effect of, uh, you know, I totally respect that. Let me ask you a question, though. Usually when people say things like that, they use it as a stall tactic because they don't want to hurt my feelings. And what they really mean is no thank you. If this isn't something for you, that's totally fine. You can tell me no thank you and I won't be offended in the slightest. If it is something that's a fit for you, then let's move forward and let's figure out a way to make this work for you. And so what would be best? And she responded back like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for your directness. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and move forward. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And by the way, for the record, I did join that multi-level marketing company. It took me a few months because I didn't have the money and such, but uh, I won't mention the name because I don't want to get any, anybody in trouble. But how do you know if someone's putting on smoke screens or not? I would think it would be pretty obvious, but maybe there's ways that you can tell. Sure. There are a few um, kind of key phrases that people will use. Uh, the most common ones are what we call stall tactics. And it's, uh, they're usually like, let me get back to you. I'll think about it. I'll go pray about it. Uh, I'll let you know. Um, just things like that that aren't actually giving you a decision, but are stalling giving you a decision. And so we, we call these stall tactics. And so... Uh, one of the things, as I mentioned, that I like to do is uh, say, usually when people say that, I never hear from them again. If this isn't a fit for you, that's totally fine. You can tell me no thank you and I won't be offended. Is that the case? And usually that will help to reveal the person's true intention. Um, another example is people may put up an objection. They may say something like, you know what, I don't have any money right now. And something that we found is really effective is just clarifying their intention. And we just say, okay, I totally understand. Let me ask you this. Is it that this isn't something that you're wanting to do and this is the reason? Or is it that this is something that you're wanting to do, but this is a concern that you have? And when yeah. you phrase it like that, people go, oh, 
okay, it allows them to clarify their intention of saying what it is that they said. And uh, this was happening one time someone was looking into one of my high-end mentoring programs, which are not inexpensive. And uh, he and his family, you know, they, they didn't have a whole lot of money. Um, he, he was a doctor. And so he was working in a very highly paid profession, but he hadn't had a whole lot of success yet in his practice. And uh, he said something like that. And I said, okay, I, I totally get it. Uh, let me ask you a question though. Is it that this isn't something that you feel would be right for you? And this is the reason why? Or is it that this is something that you would like to do? And this is simply a concern. And he said, oh, it's the latter. I said, okay. And so if we were able to figure out the financial situation for you, would you move forward? And he said, oh yeah, absolutely. And we did. And, and he did move forward. Oh, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Now give us a good example of radical integrity. Radical integrity simply means that anytime you give your word, anytime you say you're going to do something, you do it. And uh, if you fail to do it, you don't make excuses for it. Uh, if you when a person signs a contract, they are their word is their bond. And again, this is what we call radical integrity. Is anybody perfect? I don't know of anybody that's perfect, but it's always striving to have our word, our bond, so that when we say we're going to do something, we always do it. Um, if I tell someone that I'll be somewhere at at 4.30 p.m., if I walk in at 4.31 p.m., I'm out of integrity because I said I would be there at 4.30 if I tell someone that I will uh, turn in a, a manuscript of my book by this coming Friday at 6 p.m., if it's 6.01 p.m. when I'm turning it in, that's out of integrity. Now, there may be some people that listen to this that think that may be extremist, and, and maybe it is. But masters of persuasion understand that if people are going to be persuaded by what we do, by our message, they must know that we can be, that we're, we're reliable. And I think that's one of the biggest differences between people that are, that become masters of persuasion and people that aren't. People that aren't will let things slide a little bit. You know, they'll maybe make a commitment to someone and not follow through and just say, oh yeah, well, life happened. And it's like, okay, I can't rely on this person now. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let me give you an example of uh, radical integrity. I'll give you two. Number one, Somebody broke my cane when I was on a lagoon outing in Salt Lake. This is years ago, back in 1997. It was at a youth activity, and we were staying at somebody's house, and there was this really hyper 14, I think 12, 13-year-old kid playing with my cane and broke it. made me mad because it was the only cane I had. Now I had to rely on everybody else to get me around, not just my cane, you know, I, I would usually have two things, uh, another person and my cane. Now I just had one person to get me around, whoever that person may have been. So I went to uh, his uh, teacher's quorum class and said, hey, somebody, you know, I called him out. You messed up my cane. You owe me 10 bucks. I never got it. In fact, ironically enough, I'd completely forgotten about it about a week later. All of a sudden... The next year comes around. I was at a barbecue. The teacher's quorum advisor comes up to me. Oh, Kevin, did you ever get $10 from that kid? No. I'd, in fact, I'd completely forgotten about it. Here, uh, would you consider that almost a version of radical integrity? Uh, as in the teacher's quorum advisor uh, did give you the 10 bucks? Is that yeah, and not, not the person who owed it to me, and I'd completely forgotten about it. 
Uh, yeah, I would say so. Um, that's something that we try to instill in our, our children that if we, if we break something, if we damage something, or if we do something that, uh, you know, in one way, shape or another hurts someone else, then it's our responsibility to make that right. Uh, I'll give you a classic example of uh, maybe a, a possibly extreme example. And some people might, might hear this and, and think, oh gosh, I disagree with that. But uh, something that happened a couple of years ago was our son had a piece of cake that he was saving for himself. Uh, I think he was five years old at the time. And uh, that was really important to him. He, uh, he hadn't eaten all of his cake. Uh, we had this, this, I think it was for the 4th of July. And uh, he didn't eat all of his piece and he was saving it for another time when he could fully enjoy it. Well, I didn't know about that. I came into the kitchen. Uh, I think I was getting a midnight snack or something. <laughs> and oh, I saw okay. he's like sitting there and I thought, oh, that looks delicious. And so I ate it. And the next day, um, apparently he went to look for his piece of cake, which he thought he had reserved for himself. And when he found that it, that it was gone and someone else had eaten it, he was devastated. I mean, he was in tears because to a five-year-old, that's really important. Sure. And um, I remember thinking, okay, well, I've got two choices right now. I could either teach him a lesson that sometimes disappoint disappointment happens in life, or I could teach him the lesson that when we, when we, you know, whether purposely or accidentally take something from someone else, or we do something that, uh, that quote unquote damages something of someone else that we make it right. And I, I felt like it was important to teach him the latter. And I, I, I took him into my arms. I gave him a big hug. I said, I am so sorry. I didn't realize that was your cake. That was my fault. I was the one who ate it, but tell you what, I'm going to make this right for you. And I'm going to take you to the store right now. You can pick out any treat that you want. Wow. And he brightened up and we took him to the, I took him to the store and he chose, uh, he said, well, can we get ice cream for the whole family? Can we get a, a box of ice cream and some ice cream cones? And can we share it for the family? I said, absolutely. And it turned, uh, you know, a very negative situation where he was devastated into a situation where, I mean, it was a very, it was a great bonding experience. I'll tell you what, you would have been my hero at five years old. I'd have talked about <laughs> that quite often. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, there's a time and a place for, for the teaching, you know, sometimes disappointing things happen and you know, we have to learn to, to deal with those things. And, and some parents might be listening to this thinking, boy, what a, you're spoiling that kid. And maybe to a degree they're right, but at the same time, I felt like in that moment, I needed to teach him that as his parent, I did something without even realizing it that hurt him. And I needed to make it right for him in whatever method I could. And, and it turned into this great learning experience. And he's now, our kids now, since they had that lesson, if they accidentally break something uh, of one of their, their siblings or they, they do something to... Um, to damage one of their toys or something, they now know I need to make it right so that I can be in radical integrity. Well, yeah, perfect example. I'll move on from this in a few minutes. Uh, you know how 11-year-old boys are. We play with our friends and sometimes we try to act cool. And my sister had a gumball machine and one of our biggest ambitions was to break into her gumball machine and get free gum. Well, when you're, technically you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to put money in there. But you sure. know how 11-year-old boys are. We try to see what we can get away with. I'm sure girls do it too, but it seems to happen more with boys, doesn't it? Sure. And uh, we were up there, and uh, I had a ukulele pick, you know, one of those guitar picks. 
I thought, wouldn't it be fun just to act cool in front of my friend to put this guitar pack into my sister's gumball machine? Oh, it worked. But uh, the consequences later were not very good because now, since I had to force that pick in there, it was hard to turn the gumball machine, the, the handle, to get the gum to come out or whatever it was that was in there because you could put different things in there. Oh, my sister yelled and screamed at me, and I got a hold of the, uh, the top of the machine, and I lost my grip and broke the glass. Oh, it was not a good day for me, and I felt so bad. I did, uh, I did what I could to earn the $11. Actually, what happened... I told my mom about it because I felt bad at this point and I didn't want to get in trouble. And I told my mom and I gave her all the money I had in my piggy bank. I did not have the $11, but I gave her everything that I had in terms of money and she took care of the rest of it. Now, now probably looking back, maybe I should have earned the money, but I think she knew that there were two people involved. So I, I suppose you could probably say that that was a good example of radical integrity. Maybe I didn't pay the whole thing, but I did what I could possibly. Sure. Yeah. Now in your book, you mentioned people keeping their commitments and we you touched on this a little bit, but I want to get into this a little bit more. You know, it's, it's very common in sales and my dad had this problem too. Oh, we'll meet you at this time. Well, my dad would spend four hours to go to this business. Oh, I can't make, I can't see you today. I'm sick. Or this came up. And my dad didn't, I asked my dad, well, didn't you lecture the person? Didn't you lecture your client? And he said, no, because that doesn't do me any good. And I remember my mentor at this radio station that I sold advertising for, the same thing happened. My mentor said, listen, if you can't tell me that if, if you can tell me that you can't meet with us today, I'm a big boy. I can take it. If you don't want to advertise with us, just say it. Uh, how would you handle it? If you somebody scheduled an appointment and you went four hours to meet that person and that person gave a reason why he or she couldn't meet you, what would you say to that person? Because in your book, you were pretty direct about it. Sure, sure. And this is something that some people are going to disagree with me on. Uh, this is just something that um, I've found has worked for us, and it, it may or may not work for other people. But um, let me back up a little bit, uh, just because the purpose of marketing is to attract the right people into your business and to repel the wrong people. And again, some people may think, well, that sounds really harsh. You're trying to repel people. Well, yes, there are some people that I do not want to do business with. And so there are certain types of people that may, you know, somehow come into our, um, into our business, into our funnel, so to speak. And they just, it's not a good fit on either end. What we do would not benefit them and uh, they would not benefit us as clients. And so, yeah, First and foremost, one of the things that we always ask for when scheduling first-time appointments is a double commitment. And when people will say, oh yeah, I'll come in on such and such a day at such and such a time, we'll get them in the calendar. 
And I always, always say this. I'll say, now I'm sure I'm totally preaching to the choir with you. Just anytime we set aside time in our calendar, we always make sure it's set in stone. And so if we put you down for, you know, whatever date, let's say uh, Thursday, January 15th at 4 p.m., will you 100% for sure be there? And 99 times out of 100, the person will say, yes, absolutely. And they'll say, thank you so very much. I can tell that you are really respectful of other people's time. Thank you so much. But that 1% of the time, every so often, someone will actually get offended by that. And they'll say, well, wait a second. I told you I, I, I scheduled the time. Why are, you, why are you lecturing me on this? Like, uh, I mean, what if things happen? And I simply respond with, well, this is why we're asking you now. We're setting aside time in our calendar during which we could be seeing other paying clients. We respect your time too much to waste it. And so if there's any hesitancy that you won't be there, then please let us know now so that we can give that time to someone else. And as I mentioned, most of the time, 99% of the time, they'll say, oh, okay, fantastic. And it'll be a great thing. But that 1% of the time, it will repel the person that wasn't actually serious about coming in. And if we had set that side, that time aside for that person, it would have been wasted. And we want to know that ahead of time so that we don't waste our time. Now, does that mean that everyone is honest? Does that mean that that when people give you a double confirmation that there's never, ever any, uh, any flakiness that happens after that? Unfortunately, no. Getting a double confirmation uh, will dramatically reduce the no-shows or dramatically reduce the last-minute cancellations and things of that nature. But every so often, it does happen. And let's say someone is scheduled for a first-time appointment on a certain day, and uh, we send them a reminder, and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. And I just usually will ask them, uh, uh, is everything okay? And every so often, they'll tell me that some major emergency came up. You know, uh, I one time had a person say that her husband had a heart attack and went to the hospital. And I said, oh, my word, I totally understand. That is an that is 100% understandable. Uh, that is a, a, a great example of quote unquote life happening. And I said, I really hope he pulls through. Will you keep me updated? Uh, can I pray for your husband? And she said, oh yes, thank you so much. And you know, after things settled down, she did make an appointment. She came in and she, got, and she became a great client. Uh, in other cases, people have said, oh yeah, everything's fine. I just, today's not a good day. And I'll simply ask them, was this something that you were serious about? And if they're like, no, not right now. I'll say, okay, thank you for letting me know. May I make a respectful uh, request? And if they say yes, I say, I remind them, we actually set aside an hour of our practitioner's time today for you that we normally could have been seeing other paying clients because you gave your word that if we did so, you would be here. Moving forward, may we respectfully request that you please only give your word if you intend to keep it. And again, that'll do one of two things. Either they will get extremely offended and it'll repel the, the person that we don't want to do business with. Fantastic. Or they'll say, oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. It'll actually increase their respect for us and for our company because we value other people's time and we value our time. And sometimes they'll say, oh my gosh, you are absolutely right. I'm so sorry. Uh, this is something that I'm serious about. Can I come in next week at 2 p.m.? Will you 100% for sure be there? Yes, I will. And they'll, they'll turn into our best clients. Does that make sense? Yeah. So maybe that was one of my dad's downfalls. Now you said this doesn't work for everybody, but do you think maybe this was one of my dad's downfalls as he did not confront the person who canceled on him? 
Um, it could be. Um, now, confrontation doesn't have to be the, the stereotypical confrontation of, of, you know, fighting them or anything like that. Um, there are some people that, uh, quite frankly, and, and I'm, I can be included in this sometimes too, uh, a lot of people are what we call recovering people pleasers. And they'll think, oh, well, if I, if I you know, make a request like this, or if I, if I ask them for a double confirmation that they'll respect my time, they'll get offended. And, and then you know, they won't want to do business with me. And in some cases, that may be true. But I like to, when, my, uh, when I'm coaching my clients, I'll say, is that someone that you really want to do business with anyways? Do you want to try to do business with someone that doesn't respect you, that doesn't respect your time, that doesn't respect the fact that you're trying to put food on the table for your family? I said, that's not someone that I want to do business with. The people that I do business with are respectful. They respect me. They respect my company. They, they respect my time. And of course, they understand that I have the same respect for them. That's the type of person that I want to do business with. And so if, if it takes me becoming a, l- a little bit bold and, and potentially offending someone, um, then of course I'm going to do it so that we can save each other time and so that we can save each other energy in the future. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Now, I want to go into another topic. There's a grocery store in Salt Lake or somewhere in Utah where if you go in, maybe what you want is more expensive than their competitor, and it's the same product, but you're walking in there and you have a sample of crackers, I think is what you put on, you know, maybe fish and crackers or something. And so they get a little something and that entices them to shop. Now, do you think that's why Costco does what they do with the samples, especially on Saturdays? Oh, I have no doubt. I have no doubt about it because that is what we call reciprocity. People feel a lot more inclined to give you back something if they receive something first. Now, does this always work? No, of course not. Some people are, are frankly just out for, for a freebie, for a handout. But most of the time, people feel a lot more inclined to reciprocate when they receive something first. Yeah. By the way, uh, for the record, if I was a teenager in Costco and my mom let me run wild without her being there, I would have sampled everything I possibly could have and maybe asked for seconds, maybe. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah. So do you think that's why a lot of stores are having these delis now that sell ice cream and sell food and you can actually sit down and eat them is for the same reason that we're talking about? I would imagine so, yeah. Like Smith's, Okay. Yeah, because that's a very good tactic. Let's talk a little bit about multi-level marketing. Now, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but multi-level marketing, do you think one of the reasons why people buy from a multi-level marketer is because they like the person or they they think of- they're doing business with like-minded people? Oh, I like this company's values, so therefore, I'm going to do business with this, with this person. Sure. Sure. A lot of times people will have a, a direct relationship to uh, either a distributor or uh, one of the founders. Um, in fact, when my wife and I started, when we first found out about network marketing about 10 years ago, it was because the founder and CEO and product formulator of one of the uh, companies is my mother-in-law's first cousin. And at that time, I had a really bad chronic shoulder pain and uh, that I'd had for years. 
and they had connected, she had connected, reconnected with her cousin and uh, they found out about a certain product that can help with that. And they gave me some samples and I started drinking one of their, their flagship products. And after a month, my shoulder pain completely went away. And I thought, huh, well, how interesting is that? And it never would have happened had my mother not, not had that, that relationship uh, obviously with her cousin, because that was why, how she got introduced to it and how then we in turn got introduced to it. Oh, okay. Oh, good. Yeah, that, that's a good example. So what do you think is missing today in persuasion that maybe we've had, maybe we had when you and I were growing up? What do you think is missing? The biggest thing comes down to the intention is the person in, does the person intend to just get something from the other person? Um, I mentioned in the book that I made that mistake when I was first starting out in business, uh, I'd quit my full-time job. And so I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. And I of course had a wife and children to support. And I thought of everybody as a walking dollar sign and people can pick up on that. Of course they can. People have a sixth sense for the intentions of other people. And so I, I didn't have a whole lot of business. It wasn't until I turned that around to thinking uh, as soon as a person walks in thinking, I would love to serve you. Let me see if there's something that I can do for you to serve you in any way that I can. And just turning around that intention, the, literally the very thoughts of my mind, as hokey as that may sound to people, if, if they're not familiar with this concept, that literally tripled our income from one month to the next. Instead of thinking about how I could earn more money and get more money from people, uh, I started thinking, how can I serve more people? And that in turn helped people to, uh, to value our services, which of course helped us to earn more money. And so that's the biggest thing. It's finding a win-win situation for all parties involved. I think that's the biggest thing that's missing. Now, let me ask you something about, I want to go back to multi-level marketing. I don't know if you've done anything with uh, prepaid legal. And I don't know how prepaid legal is now. This is not a bash against prepaid legal. But prepaid legal used to be notorious at telling people, oh, sign up because there's only 10 days left in this promotion. You know, whatever the promotion, you get 30% off, you get 50% off. 10 days comes and goes, oh, we're expanding this for another 20 days because it's such a great promotion. Why do you think, do you think companies do this on purpose? Do you think that they gave the 10 day promotion knowing that they would expand it out? And why do you think, is this an effective tactic? It could be. And this of course is what we call scarcity. People don't take action if they think they can do so at any time. And so for example, my wife is a massage therapist. She's a phenomenal massage therapist. How often do I get mas get massages from her? Maybe once or twice a year. <laughs> yeah. Because, quote unquote, I can have it anytime. I actually pay for more massages than I get for free from my wife because usually uh, our anniversary or Valentine's Day or something like that, we'll go get a couple's massage. And uh, so, yeah, I, I pay for more massages than I actually receive for free from my wife. When a person thinks that uh, they have a limited amount of time to take action on something or that there's only a certain number of those things, then of course they're a lot more likely to do so. Um, a, a lot of people are chronic procrastinators and they'll say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. Oh yeah, I'll get to that. 
And so one of the ways to get a sale, and I'm not saying that this is good or bad, is to create some type of scarcity so that people will actually take action and get those things that they need. Now, do some companies manipulate the system? Do they create a false scarcity? Maybe. Is that something that I'd recommend doing? No. Um, I recommend creating a genuine scarcity, for example, at my live events. Um, when people sign up for other services or other you know, events that they uh, other programs, um, we do offer a certain bonus. We may say uh, the first 20 people that sign up for this today will get X, Y, and Z bonus. The 21st person, no, this is only for the first 20 people that take action. That's creating a scarcity. That's creating an incentive for people to really check in with themselves and determine, is this something that I need? Is this something that I would really benefit from? And if so, then let's help that person to take action so they do get those benefits from it. And so um, and this reminds me of a number of years ago when Hostess went out of business, right? And people were yep. selling toys on eBay for five grand a piece. And people were buying them for $5,000 because... Twinkies, I guess, were really nostalgic to those particular people. And they thought, oh, gosh, I'm never going to be able to get another Twinkie again. And so they bought Twinkies for $5,000 a piece. And was that wrong of the person to sell it for $5,000? I don't know. I, I, I think that's probably smart business. You know, if somebody has a need for a Twinkie that badly and they'll pay $5,000. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know there are going to be listeners that probably think, well, gosh, shame on that person for marking it up so high, but okay, they're supply and demand. Um, but that person had, you know, hostess had created a very real scarcity and, and people were taking advantage of that. Um, and so, like I said, do, do I condone people creating false scarcities? No, because that would be, uh, you know, dishonest. That would not fall into radical integrity. But yeah, some people need that extra incentive to take action to be able to get those life-changing products or services that they need. Uh, you mentioned people paying money to go to the seminar, mm -hmm. to, to your seminars. I assume that uh, now, are, are you doing your seminars online now because of COVID? Or have we just actually, we are able to just take a lot of extra precautions and we're able to hold them live. Um, they're not ginormous seminars where you have, you know, 5,000 people in a room. Um, we did have to postpone some of our seminars. You know, we originally had one scheduled for March of this year, which uh, that was right to when everything closed down. But back in July, the expo center started opening up again, and we just take a lot of extra precautions. All of the seats are, are at least six feet apart from each other. Uh, we make sure everyone uh, is wearing a mask. We do temperature checks. Uh, we sanitize everything during each break. And so we just take extra precautions. Uh, and so we've never once had a problem, but uh, people really started appreciating the fact that we still hold these live events because just about everyone, you know, turned to online events and people still want that live experience. It'd be kind of like saying, well, you have a ticket to Disneyland. You can't go to Disneyland right now because it's closed, but here's a virtual Disneyland ticket. It's kind of like, uh, that's, that's not exactly the same. Okay, that's cool, but yeah. I kind of want to be there in person. And that's really what makes our live events special. It's that experience, that immersive experience that people get at, while they're at those events that, that cause that transformation. Anybody can get information online. I mean, people can go on YouTube and they can find thousands of, of sales videos, thousands of videos on how to be more persuasive and they can get information, we're, but we're not interested in information. We're interested in transformation. We're interested in people 
am committed to people leaving those events as a completely different person, a, a, a better version of themselves. And so that's why we've continued to do these events live. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you mentioned uh, mentoring people and how you don't judge people that you're mentoring. I'm going to ask you maybe a weird question. No one, maybe no one's asked you this question before. But have you ever mentored someone that you don't like or you don't like how they're living and you have definite opinions about choices they've made? How do you distinguish that versus being a true loving mentor? Because I'm sure it's hard. You know, my mission, I knew people that were, I really did not like the way they were living at all. And it sometimes interfered with me teaching them. Sure, sure. You know, and it, it can be very tempting as professional mentors to let our personal thoughts and opinions about a person or about a person's lifestyle um, to influence the way that we that we mentor them. Uh, one of my mentors actually talked about this, and he had a couple that came in, and uh, pretty soon I then experienced it, where uh, there was a couple that came in that, uh, without going going too much into detail, were living a, a particular lifestyle that I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. And the thought crossed my mind, okay, how am I going to mentor this couple? And the thought crossed my mind, well, what would happen if, if one of my children decided to make negative choices? What would I do? Would I cast them out of the family? Would I say, no, you're not welcome here? No, of course not. Uh, I wouldn't do that. I would, I would help my children understand that we love them as people, not necessarily their choices, but we love them. And this is going maybe a little deeper than than you're wanting to go. Maybe going go on ahead. Tip, but a lot of people don't know how to separate someone's actions from their identity. There are some people, for example, that uh, that uh, you know participate in addictive behaviors, self-destructive behaviors, and they'll say, "Well, I can't change. This is just who I am." What they don't realize is their identity and their actions are two different things. They influence each other, no question about it. But whatever a person identifies with, their actions are going to follow. For example, a person that identifies as a smoker, there are people that will stand up in addiction recovery meetings and they'll say, my name is so-and-so and I am a smoker, I am an addict or whatever it is. And what they don't realize is that they're literally reinforcing those behaviors because they don't know how to separate the two. A person that identifies as a smoker can go six months without a cigarette but eventually they have to smoke because that's what they identify with or they have to change their identity. And so in the few cases that this happens, I separate their actions, their lifestyle from who they are. And we create an environment of unconditional love where I'm going to love and accept you as a person. I may not agree with your actions. I may not agree with your lifestyle, but I can still love and accept you unconditionally as a person going spiritual, as a child of the divine, as a fellow brother or sister. And that's what I can base my mentoring on. Does that make sense? Absolutely. In fact, uh, I'll just be a little bit personal on this podcast. I have a cousin. Um, she's a single mom. My cousin's a great person, by the way. And I'm not just saying that because she's my cousin. But there are issues that we have agreed not to talk about. Politics is one of them. We agreed not to talk about politics. We are miles apart politically. Maybe not in everything, but in some core issues, miles apart politically. 
But you know what? My cousin's family, I love my cousin. We had great times when I was a little kid. She took good care of me when uh, she was living with us. In fact, there were times where she even protected me from certain people that were wanting to hurt me or whatever. And so I just remember that and think, okay, my cousin's a person. She lives, she eats, she breathes just like me. Uh, you know what? I would want someone to treat me the exact same as I would want to be treated. So I'm going to treat my cousin with respect. I'm going to love my cousin. And we're going to talk about other things other than politics. There's plenty of things we can talk about being family members. Sure. So probably along this, maybe that's not a good example, but I, th I think that's kind of goes along with what you're saying. Sure. Absolutely. Now, um, Oh, go well, ahead. Not to put up boundaries. If, if the relationship is a win-win situation, if, if you're both, you know, benefiting from that, that uh, relationship, fantastic. Of course you can agree to disagree at the same time. I think a lot of people take uh, the, go the opposite end of the spectrum and they allow people into their lives, whether it's, it's uh, a client, whether it's uh, a family member or something that does not serve them and actually takes from them. And that's why we tell people the purpose of marketing is to attract the right people and repel the wrong people. The same can be said about, about relationships. It does not serve a person to continue to feed a relationship that is no longer serving both parties. Um, some people are best loved at a distance. Um, there are certain family members that literally every time uh, we would get together, I or my wife or both of us would end up hurt. So that they would say something, they would accuse me of some ridiculous thing and it always ended in tears. And I finally just had to say, I love these people. Um, I, I wish them all the best. I'm not just going to uh, say, you know, get out of my life, but I am not going to, I'm not going to spend time with them. I'm not going to entertain that relationship. You know, if, if they're ever in a emergency situation, of course I'll be there for them. But because I know what would happen if I spend time with them, I'm not going to, you know, someone, if someone crosses the street at four o'clock every day and they get hit by a car every single time they cross that street at four o'clock, eventually they're going to stop crossing that street at four o'clock because they, <laughs> they're going to get hurt every single time. Yep. And it's the same thing with relationships. People can be loved at a distance. And maybe that's, again, maybe that's going uh, too far farther than uh, than you were wanted to go with that situation the last thing i want to talk about is bullying um now it sounds like you were bullied quite a bit as a kid i was yeah and so was i now here's the question i have about bullying um maybe uh we'll, we'll go there when i don't do you think people and I realize school is much different than when you and i went to school i it sounds like you're quite a bit younger than me but I went to school in the 80s and 90s, and I was a, a mean kid when I was in fourth and fifth grade. You know, uh, just to give an example, when I was in fifth grade, there were some people I could not stand. And so to prove a point that I didn't like these people, I did a disgusting thing it was valentine's day and you know how valentine's day was when we were kids you'd have to pass out these valentines to everybody and then uh, we all enjoyed it because we got candy on valentine's day sure so 
I decided to make a statement. The people I could not stand, I slobbered on a person's valentine and blew snot on another person's valentine. Oh, dear. Not a good idea. And I regret that, by the way. But I, did n- I could not stand these people. I was going to make a statement, and I think I did. It definitely backfired on me because after that, I was bullied an awful lot because not only did I do that, that was the worst thing I did, but I would pop bags every single day in the lunchroom because my mom would make me a lunch before I'd go to school. And uh, I love to pop bags because it got me attention, make people laugh or get some kind of a reaction. Well, I didn't realize it. I don't know. I guess people were getting tired of it. No one told me. So uh, uh, kids are mean to each other. Uh, People would take my cane. People would put their mouth on me and blow on me. All kinds of mean things. And the teacher, uh, I had a teacher, vision teacher, who would come and teach me Braille and things like that. And I told them what was going on. So did my fifth grade teacher. Well, this vision teacher did a good thing. I didn't realize what he was doing at the time, but he went to the class and I stayed in the resource room. He went to the class and told people how to treat blind people. But then he said, is there any problems that you have with Kevin? Oh, did people come out of the woodwork? Oh, did people speak their mind? And I got word from this vision teacher who basically said, he didn't say this directly, but he basically said, Kevin, bringing some of this on yourself, knock it off. And I did, but uh, I know that's not what you were going with bullying in your book, but do you think a lot of people bring it on themselves, bullying? Uh, oh, oh, it could be. And, you know, that isn't to justify, you know, either you know, either side of the equation. I, I believe uh, both sides of the equation need to take responsibility for that but uh sure you know i i mentioned in the in the book that certain body language certain types of body language can actually bring on bullying more than other forms of body language now does that mean that the bully is justified if they see that body language no of course not as i mentioned it it, it's both sides taking responsibility for what's going on usually there's something on both sides that uh, that needs to be corrected. What do you think is the problem with bullying today with teenagers and kids? Is it the internet? Is it the fact that there's not enough parental supervision? What, what do you think the issues are? You know, there's a lot of different issues at play and uh, a lot of different factors. Uh, it could be that they, that kids uh, grow up with bullying where, where certain bullying is allowed. Uh, it could be that parents don't know how to handle it, and so they uh, they don't. Some parents just turn the other cheek. And I remember uh, my daughter coming home from playing at her friend's house, and she had encountered some bullying, and we comforted her. And uh, she, I remember uh, coming home to something similar when I was a kid. And a lot of parents are of uh, certain personality types where they don't like confrontation. And so they'll just say something like, oh, just ignore it or, oh, just just be nice. And, you know, in some cases that may be good advice. Um, but in other cases that it just kind of eggs the bully on even more to try to get a reaction out of that person. And something that I told my wife when we were first married was if any of our kids ever experienced bullying, 
we want to be those parents that put a stop to it. You know, that doesn't mean we go and, and we punch the bully in the face or anything like that. Uh, it just means taking the proper action. And we, we've taught our children what they can do in certain situations if they're getting bullied. If, they're, if someone's being a bully to them at our house, we tell them to come and talk to us right away because we will then talk to that child or whoever it is and we will put a stop to it. If they are being bullied at one of their friend's houses or something that they go and talk to the, the people that can make a difference in whatever situation it is. If there's no one available, we teach them what to say in order to turn the situation around. Um, you mentioned the internet and sure, uh, a lot of people are a lot braver hiding behind a screen and they, they say things that they would never say in person. Um, you know, the social media creates an environment for internet trolls and things of that nature. Um, and unfortunately, there are some people that grow up learning that if they throw a big enough tantrum, then they're going to get their way. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of different factors. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you want to talk about that I haven't covered? I would just say if this is something, if this is a subject that really resonates with with someone, if, if this is someone, if uh, some of your listeners want to learn more about this subject, they can email me at E-R-I-C, so my first name, Eric, at feelwelllivewell.com. And just say they, they heard me on this podcast and I'm happy to send them a free copy of the book, Master Persuasion, so that they can learn this more in depth. That'll be my, my gift to them. And so one more time, that's E-R-I-C at feelwelllivewell.com. Just mention that you heard this podcast and I'm happy to send them a copy of the book for free. Are you going to sell it on Amazon eventually? It, it is on Amazon now. We just launched oh, it. Okay. Yeah, we just launched it a week or two ago, and it, it hit bestseller, and uh, something that we're really proud of. And uh, so people, if they want to buy it, sure, by all means, uh, they can get it on Amazon. Uh, but if they would like a free digital copy of it, just send me an email, and I'm happy to send that to them. You don't have a website, do you? We do. It's feelwelllivewell.com. Oh, okay. And- the book isn't on there. Our, our books are all on Amazon, but if people want to find out more about the live events that we do, then they can do so up, uh, at that event. Uh, I would love it. I love it when people reach out to me on Facebook. Uh, just look me up, Eric Bailey. And so E-R-I-C-B-A-I-L-E-Y. Um, just let me know that you've listened to this podcast and I, I would love to connect. Um, okay. Yeah. Now, um, you are LDS. What do you like about being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints? Oh, there's too many things to list, but the biggest thing that I appreciate is the eternal perspective of things. That's something that really that's one of the things that really differentiates our church from others is the fact that we know who we are. We know why we go through trials. We know what's coming. Um, a lot of other churches uh, as you know, as, as much as respect as I have for them, have a very limited perspective on what's going to happen. They know that we're here in the world right now, and then they believe that from here we go to either heaven or hell, which, of course, we understand is uh, spirit prison or spirit paradise, and they think that's it, that's eternity. And they don't understand that we came from uh, a celestial home before we came here. We, we know the, of the premortal existence. We know of the judgment. We know the true nature of God. We know why we experience the different things that we experience. We understand the importance of eternal families. We understand the importance of 
uh, progressing eternally. And so uh, the biggest thing that, that really, that's really comforting for me and that I really love is, is that eternal perspective. Yeah. And do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I am a membership clerk in our ward. Oh, interesting. Do you get to sit on uh, meetings with a lot of drama? Thankfully, no. Uh, I'm, oh, good. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I, I know that happens sometimes with some of those clerks. Sure, sure. I'm more of more of a, an assistant. To, oh, okay. Uh, but uh, I mean, it, it's a really fun calling, and so I'm the one that counts attendance every week. I'm the one that updates the, um, you know, who has what callings and and who's moved into the ward and, and things of that nature. But uh, okay, so, yeah, that's the calling that I have right now. Well, great. Uh, I definitely appreciate you being on the podcast. And if you want to come back on, let me know and uh, we'll put you back on. I'll put you back on. Sure. Anytime. Let me know. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yep.